Center Church, glad to be with you again for another week as we continue in the parables of Jesus. And this is message two on a very short parable found in Matthew chapter 13. And this parable is the parable of the leaven or the parable of the yeast. So here's Matthew chapter 13 to recap. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom, of he- the kingdom of the heavens is like yeast, which a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Last week, we talked about a few common misreadings of this parable, which have much to do with everything ranging from the evils of Judaism to this parable being primarily about purity and impurity. And then I framed for you our approach to this parable at center. And our goal in this treatment is to offer three images or three perspectives on a short but rich parable. So the first the first picture or really vignette that we offered last week had to do with the sacred feminine. And the essential point was this, any conceptualization of the kingdom of God that devalues the feminine and the unique way it represents the Imago Dei will lead to foolishness. So last week, we we touched on many passages in the Bible, and we also thought through the role of the feminine in the the parable of, of the leaven. And we talked about how at times the feminine is, is either devalued, ignored, or even infantilized in the kingdom of God and how it's critical as we all work to experience the kingdom of God more fully, it's critical that we keep in mind the sacred feminine. This week, we're focusing on two very different portraits um, or, or, or vignettes. And those two, the first is going to be longer than the second. But those two portraits include domestic presence and reliance and abundance. So today, last time we we focused on the first essential portrait, the sacred feminine. And today we're looking at domestic presence and we are looking at reliance and abundance. So we've read the passage again and we've done some summary. Let's take a look now at domestic presence as a feature of a picture that's offered to us in this parable. And I want to highlight there's, I think, again, I think we're, there are easy ways. This has little to do with any tradition of reading of the parable and more to do with just, uh, I think something, something about reader response and being a careful reader. I think there are some missteps we can make 
in, in this elusive component of the parable, but there's also some real beauty and insight here. So let's start with domestic presence. First, it's, it's worth noting that these are, you know, obviously domestic images. These are, these are domestic images, and it begs a question, it, it pushes a question to the listener, which is what, what is the expanse, what is the scope of the kingdom of God? And in what ways does the kingdom of God challenge our desires and our ambitions? So I'm sure, like me, you've heard stories over the years from individuals, and sometimes these, these stories are coming from a pulpit. I'm sure you've heard story, stories over the years from individuals who tell this kind of narrative, I was going into this field, I was going into this occupation, and, and usually that occupation, at least in the kind of anecdotally in the stories that I've heard, there's usually tremendous promise in that, in that vocation or in that occupation. So there's either wealth or notoriety and prestige or, or the opportunity for, for tremendous success. Um, usually the culture looks highly upon these professions, you know, it could be something like, it could be medicine, you know, it could be law, it could be education, whatever the, whatever the standard career paths are that we value as a society. You know, we, I was going into this position. I was going into, I was, I was going to become a lawyer, but then I decided to, but then there was, and, and, and now we have some kind of conversion moment. It's, it's conversion or it's a call and now there's this reorientation of one's vocation and one's one's career goals, right? This is this has to be familiar to some of you. And there's much to say about that sort of narrative. And I want to I want to think through it together as we think about a parable which is incredibly domestic and I think and I think again a parable that is very elusive because there are some ways to misapply and misread the parable. So let's start with this this thought experiment essentially of the individual who is going into law, going into medicine, and then through their faith reorient their approach and now they're going to be a missionary and now they're going to be a pastor. I mean often on the other side of that story, by the way, is they go into some all-day, everyday kind of vocation where they are in a religious context, right, doing spiritual things, which, you know, we've, we've discussed that, the way that's thought of too narrowly in the past, so I won't go delve into that now. But th there's a lot built into this kind of anecdote. So you see something happening in that kind of story where the individual gives up their what what at least the way the stories often frame it is their selfish ambition or or some kind of vain conceit and then they sacrificially turn their ambitions to something that is regarded by culture by society by their religious group as more holy or more righteous. So there's a few things I want to say about that as we think about the nature of domestic presence. The idea that you have a woman who is doing kingdom work 
in the most ordinary and kind of forgettable of ways. And this, this image is meant to serve as at once a picture of the kingdom of God and also a challenge about what the kingdom of God might be or how we might conceptualize it. So here's something Levine says in her analysis of the parable on, um, on the parable of the leaven. And, and again, remembering that we're focusing on domestic presence here. Levine says this, the kingdom can be associated with pearls, but also with yeast, with banquets, but also with mustard seeds, with kings, but also with shepherds. I want, I want to underscore the insight Levine is offering. The kingdom can be associated with pearls, but also with yeast. She understands something that I think is misunderstood in many religious communities, and maybe that includes to some degree our own because it's, it's something easy to do as individual followers of Christ. She understands that the domestic presence, the image of domestic presence that is, that is offered in this parable is actually talking more about, at least in my opinion, it's talking more about how far the kingdom reaches and, and how it in fact does reach into unexpected places as opposed to narrowing our understanding of the kingdom of God into some, some kind of hierarchy that we have brought into our, our faith system. Um, and so let's think through that in, in more detail to, to elaborate on it and hopefully to make meaning out of it. I think there's a, there are a few missteps that we can make concerning domestic presence and the kingdom of God. Let's think back to the individual who leaves behind a promising career as an example and instead decides to, um, to follow Christ um, and, and, and in that following changes her vocation or her career ambitions or whatever. Uh, we'll, we'll elaborate on this. So, so one pitfall that we see in this kind of narrative, and I'm bringing this up because I think these are sometimes narratives that we tell ourselves, is that really we have not the thing that we've the ambition, this this the unhealthy kind of ambition or career goals or family goals that we feel we've left behind. We've actually not not left those behind. We've just translated them into into essentially what christian christianese into religious speak or something like that so the first the first misstep or warning i want to give on the on on our conversation around domestic presence is that we should watch out for um we should watch out for a tendency to think that we've abandoned we've left behind some kind of vain ambition and now we're now we're on the righteous path when in fact all we've done is translate that ambition into something that within certain networks or circles sounds or feels more righteous or holy and that's that's a way that the kingdom of god i think can be co-opted um or mis misapprehended by 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 followers of jesus so you know, you, again, you, you see this, this construct, you know, they, someone gives up their selfish ambition, but, but in fact, they, they've really just, they're just attempting to co-opt Jesus to try to do some other big thing that is still 
focused on their own successes, that is still focused on their own uh, – still focused on increasing their own power or their own influence. Except now – and this is what, where this kind of maneuver – and I do think it I, – I really hate arguments that rely on – on the subconscious. In other words, you know, you, you're doing this, but you don't know that you are. So I'm not really even trying to say that. I just think that we bury these things pretty deeply inside of us. Um, but now this, this is even worse because if you were going into law and you were transparent about a goal of, let's, let's say that one of your primary drivers was to, to become wealthy, then it's harder to couch that. And it's harder to obfuscate that through, um, through other other values, so you might say yes, you care, care about justice. Yes, you care about affecting um, the world for good, about changing policy and law, whatever it might be. And those things may be in some ways true. But if a deep motivator was was wealth and notoriety, it's it's sometimes harder to hide that. But then when you move into you take that same kind of ambition, that same kind of egocentric drive, and you move it into a religious sphere. You've now inoculated those those drives and those desires because what you're doing is for Jesus. But what you're doing is no more for Jesus in a church than what than, than attempting to just accumulate wealth in in some other profession was for Jesus. So this is a, a co-opting that I think is is very subtle. I'm not presenting it subtly, but it happens in our lives in a subtle way, and I think we have to watch out for it. So to summarize this first misstep, we should be wary of the ways in which we have translated our ambition, our, our egocentric or self-centered ambitions into something that feels at times or certainly sounds righteous or kingdom-oriented, when in fact, it, at its core, it's the same thing it always was. It's, it's the promotion of ourselves. The parable offers a picture of domestic presence, which shows the scope of God's kingdom. And in that scope challenges us to let go of those, those vain ambitions that, that really do seek to put us on a pedestal. But, but again, the, the more subtle observation here is that by passing judgment on others, whether they are in religious communities or outside of them, who are unabashedly driving after their own ambitions, we might accidentally, we might, um, we might ignore our own vain ambition. And that, that is a, that is a real risk. It's a, it's a very real risk, particularly if you've, in the last few years, if you've been a part of one community or one branch of your Christian faith and you, and you find it to be now problematic or undesirable or whatever, there, there's this tendency that we have to look back on, and this isn't even narrowly about religious communities, but there's this tendency we have to look back on um, on groups, communities, tribes that we were incorporated into, and we look at those unfavorably. We pass judgments on them. We are we are judgmental of them, and it's a, it's a tactic. It's it's a tool that is very easy to employ. It's a very human thing to do. 
we employ this tool to ignore the ways in which we are still making our own work and our own lives about ourselves, or first and foremost, about ourselves. So the first misstep here is to that I think people make is to presume that what this is arguing toward is only one kind of picture of the kingdom of God, which is a domestic one. That's actually not what's happening here. The the kingdom of God is, it it stretches wide. And and back to Levine's quote, the kingdom can be associated with pearls, but also with yeast. The point is that However you are furthering the kingdom, whether it's through this picture of domestic presence or whether it's through something that that looks bigger, you recognize that it is all kingdom work. And you also recognize that there's, there's risk built into all of it. If your kingdom work looks big and important to other people, the risk is that you're going to, your, your ambition is going to become more about you. And if the kingdom work that you're doing within this wide scope of of what it is to to build the kingdom of God, if the kingdom work that you're doing is something that that is more domestic, which is the picture that we're given in this parable, if the kingdom building work that, that you're doing is more domestic, there's a risk that you're still going to make it about you by focusing on the ways you are unlike the other. And both of these is actually moving the, 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 it's moving us, right, to front and center. And, and in that way, there is, there's risk in both. And I think when we receive the parable of the leaven, it's provocative because Jesus is, not, is, he's, Jesus is not saying this is the only thing that the kingdom of heaven looks like. It also looks like a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is, is, is wide. It is expansive. And so we, we want to avoid, I think, those missteps as we think about the kingdom of heaven, and domestic presence. Here I should reference a few, um, there's, there's a couple of things I want, a few more things I want to say about the kingdom of heaven and domestic presence that I think are, are essential. The first is, um, and I'll, I'll quote um, James Smith here, the first is that the kingdom of heaven reflects God's capacious scope of interest in the world. The kingdom of heaven reflects God's capacious scope of interest in the world. So I'll reference for you a few, a few books. I've already talked with you about uh, Desiring the Kingdom, those, those three books. Uh, but also um, Smith's work On the Road with St. Augustine actually deals with this. And if you don't have time to get into that text, there's a, a talk or a lecture that he, that he gave called Reforming Our Ambition. And that's, and, and that's much of much of what I'm saying, what I will be saying here, considers at once um, on the road with St. Augustine and a, a short lecture he gave called Reforming Our Ambition, which I, I recommend to you highly. So here's what, in part, what, what Smith is observing when it comes to the, the scope, the, the, the capacious reach of God's interest in the world. When we think about the kingdom of heaven, and we think about domestic presence, the kingdom of heaven, again, associated with pearls, but also with yeast, we have to begin to do the ethical work of reshaping, reorienting our ambition. I see this parable in many ways as a parable that is talking about what it is to build the kingdom, 
and how we think about our own ambition. So let me offer a question to you that is worth thinking about as individually. It's worth having conversations within your center communities on this. What do I love when I want achievement? Okay. What do I love when I want achievement? Or put maybe more clearly, what, what, what do I want to achieve if I'm really digging in to, if I'm, if I'm being transparent in front of myself, in front of my community, what, what do I want to achieve? What achievements do I desire? And what does that say about the things that I love? I, th- I think this is, this is something like, if it's not a direct quote from Smith, it's close. What do we want at the end of our ambition? What do we want at the end of our ambition? So Patrick Schreiner offers, I think, a a tremendously useful framework in in his book on the kingdom of God. And it's um, the kingdom of God and the glory of the cross is the book if you want to look into it. But here's what Schreiner says concerning the kingdom of God to give you some framework. And, and this, this will help us address this question as we think again about the range of the kingdom of God in domestic presence. The, so Schreiner says that, that we should think about the kingdom of God at minimum, at, at least, at, least at, 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 at bare minimum, the kingdom of God includes the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So Schreiner gives us, a, I think, a very helpful framework, and there's there's much to say about the kingdom of God, and um, this this teaching will not delve into all of that. But but, there's a, but the kingdom of God is tricky because it's never precisely or clearly defined, and that is a beautiful thing, and it's it's it makes it, it it's it's good because through the spirit of God working in the body, we see the kingdom, um, we see the kingdom in, in many ways. All, all over the place, as it were, but also, and we can we can see the kingdom at once, the now not yet kingdom growing inside of us. We we, we think of the kingdom in, in the world around us. We think of the kingdom to come fully, and, and that that the fact that it's not you know narrowly defined allows rightly allows the Christian church to see the kingdom flourishing and growing in unexpected ways, and in ways that allow them to be to be involved in, in building it. So, so this is a, it's a good thing that it's not precisely defined somewhere that there's not, you know, a glossary at the back of the Bible that gives us its exact meaning, but because it is so ambiguous, it also can be, I think it it, it can be mis it's, it's vague and sometimes can be misunderstood. Um, or maybe we, we think wrongheadedly about it. Schreiner gives us uh, at minimum, this, the kingdom of God deals with power the kingdom of God is about, is about power. The kingdom of God is about people. The kingdom of God is about place. And so we're given a parable that provokes because it's suggesting when, when considered in light of other parables taught on the kingdom, it's, it's suggesting that the kingdom of God is this expanse that stretches all the way from the pearl to the most domestic, ordinary, 
images that we can imagine. And that is something that is worth worth engaging. And, and it's it's where I think we it's where James Smith um, becomes so useful um, as he talks about reforming our ambition. And again, I think the book to consider on this has to be on the road with St. Augustine. As he talks about the, the process of reforming our ambition, I, I would suggest, I, I'm, I'm trying to give an additional framework for this, reform your ambition through the lens of, um, orient your ambition through the lens of power, people, and and place. And as you begin to orient your ambition toward through through these lenses, through this lens or this framework, and and as you begin to ask the question, how am I furthering the kingdom through through people, through those who have been put into my life, um, through power, which is to say, through the authority that you've been given, and authority, of course, looks like many things. Um, one way that we have authority is by having expertise. Expertise is something that necessarily grants a kind of power, um, talent, ability, interest. These are things, these are, these are, in my opinion, these are forms of power because these are things that naturally will order you up or down in, in hierarchies and relationships. And it's not so much I think about, about divesting yourself of power, but rather asking the question, how am I using the power that I have to further God's, God's rule, to further God's way? And then, of course, place. Um, and as we think about place, we, we think about, um, I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about place, but, but at minimum, I mean, we're thinking about, about geography. We're thinking about what it looks like to, through you, allow God to, to work in a particular city, through you to allow God to work in a particular community. I think one of the most disturbing things um, that, 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 that I encounter are people who seem to be waiting to, to, to do the next thing, to go to the next place. They, they, they don't feel they, that this is, and we'll talk more about this as it pertains to ambition in a moment, but they feel that their service to God, and that's rarely framed that way. I mean, it's very infrequent that people actually talk in that exact kind of language, but they basically would say, you know, after this, after this marker, then I'll be ready kind of thing. And it, it actually does a disservice to the kingdom because part of, part of being a Christian is believing that you are in a particular place and time and there, and that's purposeful and it's not accidental and it's not coincidental and that there's important work to be done exactly where you are. So this is, uh, so to, to talk about ambition now for still a moment longer and to reference Smith again, he says very helpfully, he says that the opposite of ambition is not humility but the opposite of ambition is actually something like sloth. And I think this is very useful because what he is, what he's touching on here is the idea that, uh, which you do see promoted in some, some circles of Christianity. What he's touching on here is the idea that ambition is always necessarily about vanity. It's always about uh, ego. 
It's always about self as idol. And the reason that people sometimes feel that way about ambition is because they've seen so many religious leaders who use their platform to promote themselves. And I'm as, I'm, I'm as disturbed by this, and, and just it's just disgusting, when religious leaders use, use the authority that God has given them to engage in self-promotion, to propel their own careers. That, that, that's disturbing stuff. But the response to that isn't to try to disappear yourself. The response to that isn't to, again, divest yourself of all of your, your abilities, of your expertise, of your ambition. The, the correct response to that is to recognize that ambition, we shouldn't try to exercise ambition from our lives. We should engage in the ethical hard work of orienting our ambition so that it is in service of the kingdom of God. And there are fundamental first questions to ask about this. What does your ambitions, what do your ambitions say about the things that you love? And how are your ambitions impacting your community? How are your ambitions impacting um, the power that you have in the lives of other people? Again, to, to get to Shriner, the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Ambition, hum, humility is not the opposite of ambition. You can be humble and ambitious at once if your ambitions are oriented toward knowledge of, relationship with, and service of God. And if they and if and if they are not aimed toward your own ego, and and this is really just a direct um, request and hope for the people in center in in um, our center community. My hope would be that you don't allow those really disturbing and off-putting examples of of ambition gone wrong, where you see people who are religious who are committed, who, who at least claim commitment to Christ, who are also pretty blatantly engaged in self-promotion, don't allow those caricatures and those bad representations to miscalibrate your own, your own ambitions and in, instead do the hard work of aligning your ambitions to God's kingdom. And it's, it's really not, it's not terribly magical. I don't know that it feels that good. I think it requires a lot of self-reflection. I think it, it's a process. I think it requires conversation. And it requires just action based on the insights that you have. It requires refinement. Um, think about the people in your life at this moment that, that could be served, could be helped through your insight, through your wisdom, and, and actually understanding that you have something to give to the people in your community, it, that's ambition of a kind, and it's kingdom-oriented. But also those of you who, and it's not either or, but others of you who might be more focused on developing a, a set of skills or working toward an expertise, developing expertise in, in a discipline, these are also ambitions that, could, that may absolutely serve God's kingdom. And you can engage in all of that and be and at once be humble. Um, Smith again highlights, as he does through all of his work, academic or otherwise, he he always goes back to uh, prioritizing the imagination 
maybe maybe not over knowledge, but at least maybe at times as something that's deeper than knowledge, as he talks about the value of the Christian imagination. And he applies it again to ambition, and he applies it again to the extent to which the kingdom reaches all the way into 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 the most domestic parts of our lives, the most ordinary parts of our lives, but also the most um, public parts of our lives. And he suggests that we we really need to enjoy and experiment with is is some of my language, but essentially relax a little bit and be a bit more imaginative about how you think about what it is to further the kingdom and don't and and give some real intellectual time to this because it you might find that there are things that you've been overlooking that are exciting to you and interesting to you that spark a sense of joy and imagination and purpose. And this is how we shape and, and influence um, other people. And this is how we this is how we grow God's kingdom. We want to bring our imagination into the process of kingdom building. And not merely see our role in the kingdom of God as having all of the right ideas, but rather we want to be able to look at the world around us and see all of the, 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 the myriad ways that the kingdom can flourish. And this is where we, again, to go back to the parable, from the leaven to the pearl and everything in between, I think is a central feature, it seems as a central feature of, of the message of this particular parable. So, number one, this parable gives us an image of the sacred feminine. Number two, this parable gives us an image of domestic presence, not to necessarily value the domestic over, over what we see in, in, in the public life or something, but to note how far the kingdom reaches. And then finally, and briefly, number three, this parable gives us a picture of reliance and abundance. And here's where we'll talk about what usually receives the most attention in this parable, which is the leaven as a starter that grows and permeates all of the dough. So finally, the final image I want to explore is one that concerns reliance and abundance. Let me start by quoting uh, Richard Rohr uh, from his book, a universal Christ. God seems to have chosen to manifest the invisible in what we call the visible, so that all things visible are the revelation of God's endlessly diffusive spiritual energy. Once a person recognizes that, it is hard to ever be lonely in this world again. So here the parable provokes as well. Because this is, this is a call for all of the hearers of the parable to believe and trust in a God that is reliable and to believe that the God that you worship, that the God that you see represented in Jesus is a God of abundance, is a God of ongoing and endless love is a God of ongoing and endless justice. It's a call to believe in a God you can rely on, a reliable God, 
that loves good, that is good, and at once loves loves good, loves for us to do good, and hates evil, a God that calls us to repent from sin and from brokenness, and a God that calls us to rest in his, his, his endlessly deep love. That, that picture, a universe that's being one moment after another that is being permeated with this godly presence, with this kind of love and abundance, that if, if, you, if you choose to have faith in this, if you choose to have faith in Jesus who, who speaks these truths, if you do that, you will begin to approach the people in your life in a brand new way, in a different and, and, and healthier and more whole way. You'll, you'll choose to see your work in the world in a different way. And you'll, cho- you'll choose to see your role um, in this particular place and time in an entirely different way. Do you believe fundamentally that God is reliable? That God is light in whom there is no shadow? Do you, do you believe fundamentally that God is, that, that, that God is abundant? That in God there is more than enough? And that, that love is, is available for you to receive in faith because it's so. That's, that, is, that is the case. It is a matter of opening your heart and allowing a God of abundance to abide there. The parable of the leaven strikes at the reliability of God, the provision of God, the, the abundance of God through the imagery of food, of, of people having enough to eat and often in excess. And, and this, this is um, a thread throughout the, the Old and New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, give us this day our daily bread. Um, and we know that there are layers to, to, to the meaning of that, as, as we know. Uh, think about God providing food for the Israelites in the wilderness. Or here's 1 Corinthians 11, um, verse 23, familiar to no doubt most of you. For from the Lord I received what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and having given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is being broken for your sake. Do this for my remembrance. Likewise, after supping, the cup also saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink for my remembrance. For as often as you eat the loaf and drink the cup, you announce the Lord's death until he come. Jesus is giving us food for our spiritual lives as well as throughout his ministry providing, providing an excess of food for his disciples, for those who followed him, and for those outside of his camp. No surprise that Jesus, the body and the bread, at the beginning of his life is placed in a feeding trough. Or let's talk about Robert Farrar Capon's comment in, in one, of my, one of my favorite books of his, maybe my favorite book of, of Capon's. I really love The Fingerprints of God, but here's Capon, The Supper of the Lamb. I've quoted pieces of this Tremendous book before. Only miracle, says Capon, only miracle is plain. 
It is the ordinary that groans with the weight of glory. Only miracle is plain. It is the ordinary that groans with the, with the weight of glory. Don't you see how it's, it's the abundance of the Spirit of God charged throughout the world that allows the ordinary to carry the weight of glory, that allows, that allows a baby in a manger, that allows the body and the bread of Jesus first placed in a feeding trough and then supplying the, the material needs of his community and those outside of it, and then and at once supplying the spiritual needs of those uh, those that choose to love him and follow him. This is God. This is a God who's reliable. In view. this this God, the God we have in view here is one who's reliable, who's one uh, who's exceedingly abundant. So, um, the parable of the leaven uh, has taken. Uh, candidly, more time than I intended, but we looked at three, we've, we've essentially presented three vignettes on the parable of the leaven. First, the sacred feminine. Second, domestic presence. And third, reliance and abundance. So as you're listening either individually or in center communities, I'd like to close with um, a meditation for you. And this, this meditation at once touches on all that we've discussed in these three distinct but overlapping vignettes. And I should say uh, thanks, Jason, for more than a few times helping me track this book down. Now I'll be reading a selection from hymn one from Divine Eros, the hymns of St. Simeon. And the first hymn um, written concerns divine illumination and the light of the Holy Spirit, that God is the one place in which all the saints have rest after death. That one who falls away from God into the other place will have no rest in the life to come. That's the quick summary of the hymn. But I am most interested in the Holy Spirit as divine light and divine illumination. And like yeast in dough, um, the Spirit permeates permeates the whole, the whole cosmos. So here we are from hymn one. And we'll close with this meditation. He fills everything with all good things. With just a nod and an intention, he possesses the power. For the mind looks upon invisible things that are utterly without form, whole, simple, uncompounded, infinite in magnitude, for my mind perceives no beginning, it sees no end at all, it knows no center, and how would it tell what it sees? It seems to me that the totality is seen, not all at once in its essence, but by participation.
For when you ignite something from a fire, you take the whole fire. And there it remains undivided. It remains as before. Moreover, what is given is separated from the first fire and is made into many lamps, for it is material fire. This is a spiritual, undivided fire, and utterly indivisible and inseparable, for in communicating to many it is not divided into parts, but it remains both undivided and in myself. It springs up in me from within my wretched heart like the sun or like the solar disk, spherical and showing itself radiant like a flame. The Spirit of God, present fully in men and women, working through both the ordinary and the extraordinary, is at once reliable and abundant. Blessing Center, we'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.